standard issue for all women. Hey guys, it's Jen here, bringing you from Hannah's small screen antics in yesterday's Outside the Box, very much to the silver screen in this London Film Festival special. I love London Film Festival, partly because I actually worked at it one year in the box office after I got back from my US cycling jollies and was um, yeah very much unemployed, fun fact. And because of that, I got to be in the same room as Michael Fassbender. So BFI, who also this year facilitated me being in the same room as Idris Elba, I am forever in your debt. This has gotten distinctly unfeministy, hasn't it? Anyway, the festival is this year screening more films by female filmmakers than ever before, and I was lucky enough to catch up with the directors, and indeed a producer, to talk more about their three very different films. I spoke to Sudeben Mortezai about her devastating drama Joy, which is entered in the official competition this year, Jessica Lesky about her gorgeous and nostalgic documentary I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, but first up, Naziha Rebi talks to us about her documentary Freedom Fields, following the inspiring story of Libya's national women's football team, rising in the wake of the 2011 revolution, and that is coming up after this very short break. Hello. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure. I just wanted to remind you that if you actually want to see us talking in the flesh, you can do it by coming to one of our In Conversation shows. We've got three shows left in 2018, all of them held at the Leicester Square Theatre. The first one is on October the 28th when our guests are Stacey Solomon, June Sarpong and Lisa Riley. On November the 20th, we'll be allowing some men to do the talking when our guests will be Richard Herring, Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. And finally, in December, our lineup will be Felicity Ward, Lolly Adafopi and Laura Bates. And that is on December the 16th. You can find out more by going to the Leicester Square Theatre website or to Sarah Millican's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Thanks. I'm joined by Naziha Reby, director of the documentary Freedom Fields. Hi, Naziha. Hello. Hiya. So I watched your film yesterday. It's your first feature film, is that right? Yes, yes, it is. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it initially was a film about the formation of Libya's first women's football team and, and following them as they tried to play their first ever match. But it kind of became something quite different. I, I suppose it's a coming-of-age film within a conflict zone. It's a... It's a film about sisterhood, it's about team, community. I think it's also about like getting up after being knocked down over and over and over again. So, yeah, lots of things. And I think that's what drew me to it was these, these women were like, I don't know, really inspiring that determination and, and, and really fun as well. I mean, take the piss out of each other a lot. And, they're, yeah, they have that great kind of banter that you get in a team and I like being around that so yeah. There's a moment in it, I don't want to spoil it for anyone but there's a fantastic kind of I am Spartacus moment which is which is brilliant, I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> so you are British Libyan and you were spending some time in Libya when you made this film, sort of learning about your heritage. How did this story come to you? Was it big news at the time? No, it was like the opposite um, so I was like, heard about them, this team that no one had ever really met and I was just like, I mean, no one's ever met them and no one's seen them play, but they existed. So I was kind of like intrigued by that mystery. And then I eventually found them and hung out a lot with them. But yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I was in Libya with my dad. I'd been there for the first time in 2010, then I went again in 2011 and then ended up staying in 2012 and, and living there. So it was, yeah, they were, they were a great group of people to kind of 
hang out with during that really exciting period after the uprising. The women in the team, the women in the team are just brilliant and I just, you know, they were supposed to be here now for um, the film festival and weren't able to come um, because of the conflict in Libya and what you see in the film is still ongoing now, the conflict is still ongoing, they are still living that life but they're, they're still working, they're still working on, like, you know, using sport and trying to work with the next generation to, to pass on what they've learned and, and the fact that they're still doing that and the fact that they can't be here I mean we speak every day but yeah I'd, I wish they were here So I think for many people in the West when they think about Libya they sort of automatically think about you know Gaddafi and sort of brutal dictatorships and, and whatnot. and I think there's probably a bit of a perception of women in these Middle Eastern countries a bit oppressed and downtrodden and, and maybe all a bit old-fashioned and whatever. But in the film, these women are obviously very progressive. You know, they say that they're dreaming of women's advancement. One of the women that you follow, Halima, at points in the film, gets really angry about the situation that the team are in. Did you hope to address some of the stereotypes in the film? Did you hope to sort of change people's minds about what their preconceptions about Libyan people and the Middle East in general might be? Yeah, I think that was really important for me to show a very different side of a place that people know very little about, um, but also show a different narrative of women in the region. I mean, these women aren't victims. I mean, as you see in the film, they're really feisty and they're and they're driven, but they're also doing that within their society. So they're not like going outside of the society to do that. They're doing it within the society, and that's even I think more admirable in a way. And they're finding the way to do that. Um, and yeah, so I think for me it was really important to show that kind of nuanced stance and that, you know, we see brilliant women in the film. We also see women that are quite like, um, have internalised kind of, I don't know, misogyny. It, misogyny and, you know, they're kind of, I don't know, projecting the patriarchy as a, like, a legacy that they've been handed down through society. So it wasn't like a men are bad, women are good thing. It was like very important for me to show good men, bad men, good women, bad women and everything in between because that's how life is right so and and we don't see that we always see you know the poor victim girl on a poster in a hijab looking kind of sad and there's you know there's so much more to speak of and so at the beginning of the film the team are they are trying to go to their first ever tournament right which is in Germany, and they're ultimately told that they can't do that because of the threat to their safety. What was the basis of that opposition to the team? Was that a real, genuine threat to them? I think it was a mixture of things. So there was a real, genuine threat, but I also think that that threat was an easy way out for the Federation. Also, they were up against it too. They had threats. Um, the, the ministry had been attacked, the Ministry of Sport and Youth, um, and so they were also, you know, under threat. So I think it, it was difficult. It was a really difficult time because of that. Society's backlash was horrible. It was a horrible moment in time to, to, for them, but also to witness. The team, they are really feisty, and Fadwa makes the point in the meeting with them, you know, there are engineers here, there are doctors here, there are, you know, we're not like silly little women. What do you think it took for them to stand up against that? I think they were just so frustrated. I mean, when the when Asya gets off at the back, I was like, you knew it was Ramadan. Like, what do you mean? 
Or like, you know, you're saying it's a security issue, but the security issue is going to be a problem, you know, later down the line too. And I think they were just so frustrated and they just felt like we've crossed the line already on every angle and society is already against us. We don't have anything to lose. So we, you know, that's, I think, where Fadwa's frustration came from. But also Fadwa really wanted to, they hadn't met the team, you know. They were supporting this team, but they hadn't met them. So for her, it was like, I want you to meet these women. I want you to look in their faces and understand. So... Yeah, I think that all came from like such built-up frustration over so many years. You know, there is obviously a genuine love of football there. But what else do you think drew the women to this team? Do you think it was partly a distraction from all of the chaos around them? Fadwa often says, and a lot of them say, I think it's that finding a space in which to actually be yourself, to be with other people, to feel your body, to feel you know what it means to kind of breathe and 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 also be part of a community and so I think lots of things a lot of them say it taught them like a lot of self-discipline it taught them a lot of kind of help them be these successful people you know because sport I think can do that for different girls different things some it's like for football some it's like doesn't really matter if it's football or not it's just a place to go and you know have some fun and and breathe a bit yeah so you made this film pretty much with well, with an almost entirely female team, and your producer, Floor is here. Hi, Hi Floor. Hello. <laughs> what was that experience like? Well, I haven't made a film with an entirely male team, so I don't know the opposite. But, yeah, no, it was brilliant. I think it's important to... I don't know, if you're doing something like this on screen with the film, I think behind the camera you also have to practice what you preach, right? And... Um, so, you know, having a female composer or, like, um, having female editors. And, and not even just because of representation or providing work for people, but also just, like, people have different experiences, right? And I really felt that this film needed that, I don't know, a different language, a different way, it's a different tactility. Not that men don't have that. But, yeah, a shared experience of what it means to grow up as a woman. I mean, you can understand it as a man, but you can't ever feel it or know what it means to grow up in a patriarchal society and I think from that very core point working with women for me was really important. I'll ask you a question actually. Okay so this is your first feature as well. What drew you to this film? Why were you interested in, in getting involved? Um, I think it was a bit of a, a combination of many things. I met Nazia in Libya because I was in Libya um, running some workshops, documentary workshops. And um, I, I went to Libya right after the revolution and I'd never been exposed to such hope. I think everyone you talk to, meet on the streets, was so incredibly hopeful after the revolution. And, and I, just, I just reached my heart and, and yeah. And then when the opportunity came to work with Nazirha on a project set in Libya with those incredible characters, it was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say that that was the main, the main reason, that hope. And, and then you get to know the people in the film a lot more and you get to understand what is at stake. And, and you, can't, you can't walk away. It's impossible. They're just under your skin and you want to do everything you can to help So. Is there anything that people can do from here to help these women or progress their cause in any way? Yeah, I mean, if you see the film, talk about it. Positively. No negative stuff, please. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, freedom of speech. What? No. Um, 
They have got an NGO. Um, currently, because of uh, terrorist laws and stuff, you can't transfer money to Libya, but they are setting up an account for their NGO in Tunisia. So we'll soon be able to take contributions for their work. Yeah, they're working like in schools. Um, they're going to be working in um, refugee camps, working with the scouts. So, you know, they've got big plans, but they need support. And, um, yeah, hopefully that's what we can... The film premiered at TIFF this year, the Toronto International Film Festival. It's not that complicated, is it? I don't know why I seem so pleased with myself then. Um, and it's, I think, if you're listening to this on Saturday, you've missed your opportunity to see it at the London Film Festival, but it is going to be released next year. Is that right? Yeah, we want to do a theatrical release during the Women's World Cup. Oh, Topical. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's when we would hope to do a theatrical release and, you know, because it would be nice to have some events around it and, you know, linking up to the World Cup. Also, some kickabouts might be fun and engage with some um, different communities here working on that, but also in the region, in, in kind of the Middle East and North Africa. So, yeah, yeah, it's sold out at LFF, so you couldn't see it anyway. That's bonkers, isn't it? But... Um, yeah come see it and where can we follow you and follow the film on social media etc so we know what's happening with it oh, all those usual places um facebook twitter um instagram i think we are Freefields film at twitter we are Freefields film on instagram and on facebook we are freedom fields film so any variation of those you'll find us Nizia, thanks very much for joining us Thank you. What a weird thank you. <laughs> We're joined on the phone by Suderbear Mortesai, the director and screenwriter of the somewhat ironically named Joy, which is showing at the London Film Festival. Suderbear, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with the same question that I always start with. I've seen the film and it's it's fantastic. It's it's extremely hard hitting. But can you tell us a little bit about the film and what drew you to this particular subject? Well, Joy is uh, the story of a young woman from Nigeria who has been victim of human trafficking and is forced to work as a prostitute in Vienna. And it's entirely her story from her perspective. And I kind of stumbled upon this subject when I read uh, about this subject of human trafficking from women from Nigeria. And what really hit me immediately was that it's women exploiting other women because there is like like the pimps, they're, they're the so-called madams, mm -hmm. and there are women who were former victims of sex trafficking themselves. So that was something really amazing and really shocking to me. And made me, made me want to know more, you know, about this world and uh, try to understand how this can happen, this kind of vicious cycle. Basically, the premise is that these women in Nigeria, and I'm, I, I don't know if this happens in, in other countries as well, but this specific thing in Nigeria is that basically they are essentially kind of tricked into it by a juju priest, Yes, exactly. Uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, of course, there is uh, sex trafficking from many different countries, mm. but there's a, uh, Nigeria is a very specific case. Most of these women also come from a very specific region of Nigeria. It's Edo State mm -hmm. uh, in the southeast. And there's a whole system of trafficking where 
uh, young girls, young women uh, who are desperate to leave because they have very harsh living conditions or come from very, you know, broken families, very poor circumstances, they're approached by a sponsor. They call themselves sponsors, mm-hmm. the traffickers, and they're offered to a job in Europe. And, you know, it used to be that they didn't even know what the job is or they thought it's some kind of normal, decent job. But nowadays, like after my research, I found out that actually... Like everyone knows already in, in Edo State and in Benin City that it's it's for prostitution because so many women also have come back and they send money to their families. So it's like an open secret that it is actually for prostitution. But the girls are still very young and very gullible and they think it will be all right and, you know, they can survive it. It's not going to be that harsh. And what they have to do is they go to a native doctor or a juju priest to swear an oath mm-hmm. uh, that they will pay back all the money they are owing the traffickers. And of course, they have no idea how much this money is. You know how huge this sums is. They're owing like fifty, sixty thousand euros. This wow. this kind of sums. They have no idea how how long they would have to work actually for that kind of money. And, and they're really afraid of this juju oath. So once they're in Europe and they see that the, the work is really harsh, the living conditions and working conditions are terrible and like a nightmare, there is no way out for them because they're owing a lot of money and they're very afraid of this juju oath. And they are basically living a life like slaves mm. and trying to pay off these debts. And the juju oath, is, it's sort of like a ritualistic kind of thing, isn't it? And they take fingernail clippings exactly. of hair or yes, something. Exactly, yes, the... the Yes, yes. It's done at, at, at a shrine, at the mm. juju shrine, and, and the juju priest will take uh, some nails, hair, blood, like really intimate parts of their body, and, and keep them in the shrine. He will perform a ritual, there's an animal sacrifice, and they have to literally swear uh, in front of this shrine and leaving their body pr- parts there as a kind of token, you know, or something that's, you know... Binds they, them if, to the agreement. If they break the oath, yes, exactly. Uh, they're very afraid that they will die or um, get sick or become get mad or someone in the family might die. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very strong ritual that has a lot of power over these girls. To me, obviously, that sounds a bit bonkers, but to these girls, it's very real, isn't it? Like, the threat to them is very real. They really believe that this could happen to the girls the 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 threat is absolutely real they 100 percent believe in it and uh, even if, if you try to talk to them even those who say on the surface no i don't believe in it anymore you can feel that they're still afraid it's a very strong belief you know and from the outside it it might look uh, crazy but for the girls it's it's a reality you know they, they really are afraid of this juju oath so how did you go about researching the characters and, and the plot of the film? Uh, well, you know, I wanted to make a film that's really very, very authentic and very intimate and kind of puts the spectator into the situation, like into the lives of these women, mm. as if you were just just an observer, you know, inside their lives. And, and so the research had to be very thorough. And I met a lot of women uh, in Vienna, women from Nigeria who worked in uh, in prostitution and who were trafficked and who were able to get out some of them were still working also and after a while i made also a research trip to nigeria to that part of nigeria edo state where other women come from and that was also like a very important part of the research to really understand the social cultural context and also the kind of families they come from the biographies 
And then also the next step was in casting. I met a lot of women who told me their stories or told me what they knew about the subject. Uh, So it all came together and I based the the screenplay uh, on these real life stories. Did you get a sense for how big this problem actually is? How many women are affected by this? It's it's actually a huge problem all over Europe, and it's not just Austria, you know, all over Europe, and I'm 100% sure from my research that it's also in Britain. I know that there's a lot going on in Italy, in France. From the statistics that we get, and of course, not everyone is in statistics, because a lot of these women are illegal, and they're not, you know, you don't see them in any statistics. But uh, there are tens of thousands of Nigerian women working uh, as prostitutes in, in, in Europe, and all of them are trafficked. At the moment in the UK, there's a dialogue about a kind of perceived lack of support for sex workers who actually choose to be in the industry and that any criticism of, of that choice, that, mm-hmm. you know, there's an argument that it's empowering for women. Any criticism of the sex industry in general is a judgment on their chosen profession. So I just wonder, in light of the work you've done around this film and the research you've done, what would you say to that? Well, you know, I think we have to really differentiate between sex work per se and and human trafficking. Actually, only a minority of women get to choose because not every sex worker is a victim of human trafficking. And I think what everyone can agree on is that human trafficking and and this kind of exploitation of of women is absolutely wrong, you know. Mm. I think everyone should be and is against human trafficking. You know, there are different positions on sex work, and it's actually also from a feminist perspective, I think that there are are different positions on sex work. Here in Austria, for example... Uh, we have two very like main different feminist positions mm. on sex work, and yeah, one is like very sex work positive. And actually, this uh, like first is an organization who helps victims of human trafficking, and they are absolutely hundred percent against human trafficking. But they are pro sex work. They say that if a woman, for whatever reason, chooses to be a sex worker. She should be supported and she should have legal support and, and medical support and, and like be treated as a regular working person. And there is this other position, also like feminist position to say no prostitution in any kind of prostitution is exploitation of women and it should be abolished or, or shouldn't be legal. So there is quite a debate about that also in Austria. I can understand both positions, mm. but I think what everyone can agree on really is that what we don't want is human trafficking. And I get the feeling that if uh, sex work is punished and is not legalized, then the women are in an even more dangerous situation, like the trafficked women, because it's more in the dark, it's more uh, on the fringes of society, and they don't have any rights. I think it makes them more vulnerable. So that's what I can say from essentially from from my research, although it's a very complex issue, but Mm. like to make it to simplify it. I think what I'm taking from that is that it's important to differentiate between the women who choose to do this and and the women who are in pretty dire circumstances and, and being exploited, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. It's really important to differentiate is a woman, uh, has the woman like the freedom and the power to choose for herself and wants to be a sex worker? Or is she being exploited and she doesn't have any choice? And is, is she being, uh, you know, a victim of trafficking? I think that's a big difference. Mm. So what do you want people who watch the film to take away from it? 
most importantly for me, I want people to experience how it is to be in this kind of situation that the trafficked women find themselves, to feel that, you know, to put themselves in their shoes mm. and experience it from, from their point of view. Also, the, the, the main question that led me or drew me to the subject was, how is it that women exploit other women, mm. and especially women who were former sex workers themselves? Uh, I want the audience to understand when you don't have any other option, and the only option is to, you know, f become a perpetrator instead of, like, you are a victim and Exploit, then become a be perpetrator. Exploited, I guess. Exactly. Mm. Um, I want the, the audience to understand that it's not such an easy choice, you know, that sometimes you don't have any choice than to do this. Mm. Where can they watch the film? Well, the film is a part of the BFI London Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And there will be screenings on the 16th and 17th of October. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very happy that the film has been also chosen uh, for the official competition. Yes. So, which is yeah. also like puts it in the, in the spotlight. Yeah. Very happy about that. Excellent. Where can we find you or information about the film on social media? Uh, well, there is a Facebook page, mm -hmm. which is just uh, Joy Der Film, which is like a German joy and then der film uh, is the facebook page mm -hmm. and we'll post like all the news there regularly thank you so much and best of luck in the competition as i said i've seen it it is fantastic it's so powerful and and raw and it really does feel like you're in the situation absolutely so i think you've you've definitely achieved what you set out to <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> okay great it was a pleasure talking to you Hello, Mickey here, interrupting again, but to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Hello, me again. I just thought I would give you a rundown of some other things that are on at the festival that I'm looking forward to seeing. So first up, Widows, a kind of female-led heist movie by Steve McQueen, starring Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez, which is pretty much all you need to know about that, really. It's not bad pedigree. Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, If Bill Street Could Talk, will be showing. And OK, those are both male directors, but very much focused around female stories. Also, really hoping to get to see The Hate you give which is about a young girl who witnesses the police shooting of her friend and it's based on the young adult novel by angie thomas it's getting very very good reviews so i'm excited about that and a private war starring rosamund pike which is about sunday times war correspondent murray colvin who was shot dead in syria in 2012 i've not been able to get to too many screenings yet because i've been busy making this for you haven't i but I will give a massive, massive, massive tip of the hat to Sorry to Bother You, which is directed by Boots Riley and starring Lakeith Stanfield, who you may better know as Darius in Atlanta, and Tessa Thompson of Thor Ragnarok and Creed, I fucking love Creed, fame, and apparently Lady in the upcoming Lady in the Tramp remake. And I don't know how I feel about that. Anyway, it's brilliant. It is really, really brilliant. But it's been out in the US for a while, so my advice to you is do not... Google it. Don't Google it. Just go and see it. You won't be disappointed. 
Finally, the fight directed by a friend of the show, Jessica Hines, and basically starring every friend of the show slash mag ever. It's got Sally Phillips, Kathy Tyson, Alice Lowe, Anita Dobson. I almost wonder why I'm not in it. That B&A level drama didn't come for nothing, guys, alright? Anyway, it is, it's wonderful. There's so, so, so much stuff going on at the festival, which is on until the 21st of October. You can find out everything you need to know about the festival and what's on by visiting whatson.bfi.org.uk forward slash LFF. Now, back to the interviews. I'm joined via the medium of fantastic technology of phone, Skype, whatever, by Jessica Lesky, director of a documentary, I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. Jessica, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've just finished watching your film this morning. I think the title is fairly self-explanatory, but can you tell us a little bit about the film and what drew you to this subject? Yeah, of course. So I um, had never liked a boy band before, mm-hmm. um, even though, you know, I'd been at school at the height of kind of Backstreet Boys and Sync and Hanson and all that. Uh, five, you know, should drop in some English ones there, take that. Um, <laughs> it just did not interest me at all. Not only the music and, and, you know, the boys in the band, but even the fans. I, you know, was very dismissive of the fans. Yeah. And... Something happened when One Direction came into the world and I just fell so deeply in love with them despite being 31 and, you know, not not having a history of boy band love. And I just felt like I had missed out on this whole phenomena. And going online and seeing the fans, you know, the, the fan art they were making and the fan fiction and how kind of hilarious they were on Twitter, I realised I'd been dismissive of them with no reason mm-hmm. and kind of realised that, that there wasn't really a fair representation of what being a fan, particularly a female fan, um, is like. Yeah, I, it's interesting you say that, actually, because I, I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but... Uh, <laughs> but not it's a first, safe space. Thank you. Well, well, let's hope our, it's a safe space with our listeners as well. So I do have a history of uh, of boy band love. Never, like, that extreme. Like, I had friends who were pretty extreme, and I don't think I was ever that extreme, but I, I always say, like, my 12th birthday... I went to see Take That at Wembley Arena and it's the best birthday I've ever had. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Because when you're 12, wow. birthdays are still good, right? <laughs> so so I did that and, and then I was really into, oh God, it's so, so embarrassing. I was really into Boyzone. But also, mm-hmm. but one, one Direction, it's funny you should say that and this is the thing that I might live to regret saying. One Direction made me want to be a teenage girl again. Like I felt jealous of teenage mm. girls. <laughs> Yeah. For One Direction. They came into the world at a time when the world needed a, a sweet boy band. Mm. It was, the, what they got me with was that the video clip for one thing. I don't know if you oh. would remember it, but they're, they're riding around London on a double-decker bus. It's very kind of Beatles-y. They're, yeah. they're being chased by a girl. And they're, they're smiling and they're wearing bow ties and yeah. it just was so sweet. Yeah. And I just didn't feel like there was there was anything like that really in pop music at the time. So you're right. It, it, it was, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful not just for teenage girls, but everyone needs a bit of that, that sweetness in their life. But also, 1D, a little bit edgy. I don't know if you'll know about this. It was, do you have the X Factor, as in the UK X Factor in Australia? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you know 1D came out of the X Factor and they yes, were in yes. the final, but they didn't win. And Harry Styles is, I don't know if anyone's ever actually, if he's ever admitted this or if it's ever 
pro- been proven to be true. But this guy, Matt Cardle, won it. And then at the end, you see Harry Styles, who at the time was like 16 or something, whisper in his ear, think of all the <laughs> pussy you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like, oh my God. And I think, and Harry Styles was this ridiculously cute little guy, but he had this sort of edge to him. It blurred the line between what they're like as the characters in the band and what they're that they're actually teenage boys, and that's that's where their brains go. It's nice to pretend they're just, you know, wearing bow ties all the time and just singing about wanting to hold your hand, Absolutely. but it's probably not the case. Well, I think <laughs> I think that's actually that is an interesting point to move on to. Really, what do you think the enduring appeal of boy bands is to teenage girls, and do you think that? It really, it's like the acceptable face of sexuality in young women. Mm. I think it is that ideal that you can project, you know, your ideas of love and romance. I mean, that's not the only thing that it is. And for the, the girls and women in my film, it's lots of different things. But I think in general, it's that the boys that are around you in your life, you know, are not going to write you really, <laughs> you know, love songs or poems. or mm. And girls at that age, you know friendships and relationships and communicating and is all very important to them so they can project those ideas of what a boyfriend could be like onto a member of a boy band and I think because there's multiple members it's something you can do with your friends you don't have to fight over who gets you know the one member if it's like a B you know Justin Bieber everyone has to fight I don't know if they're still fighting over him, but, you know, yeah, with One Direction, you can pick who, who matches your personality best and who matches your friends and, you know, there's matchmaking in there too. So it's just a really fun way, yeah, like you say, to play with the idea of sex and romance and, you know, what an ideal partner might look like. Boy bands are something that appeal, I guess, mostly to young girls or teenage girls. Why do you think, or why or how do you think girls particularly are sort of socialised to follow bands in this way and boys not? Yeah, I think boys probably do feel similar things that society doesn't let them. Because, you know, they're allowed to, I guess, fangirl over their favourite sports star and it looks very similar. It's putting posters on your wall, it's knowing their birth date, it's knowing their stats, you know, it's knowing their favourite meals, it's screaming when you see them play. It's very similar, really. But um, to feel that, to, to allow yourself to feel that for a band or a singer or a movie star, I don't know if young boys are allowed, you know, feel comfortable To doing express that, it. Which is a bit sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's an expression of emotions in, in young girls, isn't it? And, yeah, society doesn't really allow young boys to do that yeah I don't think it is always romantic you know I I did speak about that I do think it is important to picture them as you know romantic ideals but a lot of it it, you know you have an idol not just because you want to marry them you have it because you admire their talent or you want to be like them or you you know there's something that you like about them not necessarily you know romantic so I'm sure boys do feel that for you know, members of bands, but yeah, just aren't comfortable to express that. The film follows four different women, two of whom are in the US and two are in Australia, and their different, I don't know, infatuations, fandoms, whatever you want to call it, I guess, over a period of the girl in the US, over a period of a couple of years, uh, she's a big mm-hmm. 1D fan. They're all different ages, and some of the some of them are probably like a bit more self 
aware than others, I guess. Why do you think yeah. the strength of feeling endured for the older women? Yeah, I think what's interesting is so many people, parents or teachers might, you know, say to teenagers when they love something, it's just a stage, you're going to grow out of it, um, which feels really unfair because when you're in it, it just feels like the most important thing in the world to you. And I wanted to speak to people who were still fans because we spoke to kind of neuroscientists who showed that the, the teenage brain is kind of going through such a huge stage of rebuilding itself. It's kind of similar to toddlerhood. And so the experiences that you have, the music that you listen to, all that stuff is so important and really does stick with you it's I don't know if it's that you grow out of it you just become too self-conscious to admit to liking stuff and so I like that these women could were really in touch with how seminal loving these things had been for them and how as you say enduring it was kind of think like the older you get also the, the less you care in some ways so maybe you go through that phase where you're really yeah, young exactly. and you're you're really into it and then you know you're maybe like your late teens early 20s whatever and then there's a bit of pressure to be a bit more cool and then when you get a bit older than that you kind of I always say I feel like the point of getting older is being able to say without irony I enjoy the song Orinoco Flow by Enya so there like it's it's, it's not even a joke I just I just enjoy it so there so I guess like maybe they've come out the other side of that and and one of them maybe a couple of them actually do talk about sort of outing themselves don't they because yeah I mean there's definitely shame I think one talks about I don't know if she mentioned a particular band, but in the interviews, the Backstreet Boy fan said she also really loves Radiohead. And she can speak about Radiohead in a similar way, and no one rolls their eyes or calls her crazy for having gone to, you know, how many concerts she has. But once she talks about it with the Backstreet Boys, you know, everyone's a bit suspicious of her. So there's definitely like a music elitism in there that says you can love you can love what society deems is worthy and boy bands in general, people don't deem worthy. So what do you hope that people watching the film will take away from it? A couple of things. I think a big thing is I want fans to feel seen. I don't feel like you see fans taken seriously in in movies or, you know, things that talk about fans. It's usually let's find the craziest and the loudest screamers and the biggest criers and that's all that you really get. So yeah, I really want fans to feel seen. Fans of anything really. We just played at um Fantastic Fest in Austin mm. and you know that's a big genre festival and the audiences there were like, "Oh, this this is how I feel about horror movies or this is how I feel about heavy metal music." You know, they could still see themselves in it. Mm. And I guess beyond fans, and I want people who you know, maybe boy band sceptics or, you know, parents or, you know, people who don't understand the phenomena to come along and get to know these girls and women in the film and and go on the journey with them and maybe understand a little bit about why this is an important experience. When can listeners go and see it? Uh, So it's playing on Friday the 19th of October, mm-hmm. around six o'clock at night, and then there's a boy band party afterwards. Oh wow! Um, that everyone is invited to. Yeah, which the festival is putting on, which is going to be pretty fun. Mm-hmm. And then it plays again that um, Sunday, the twenty first of October, also in the early evening. Jessica, where can we find you on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, so we can sort of follow what's happening with the film? 
Yeah, so the film is across all social media, even all the way down to Tumblr, Oof. all the way up to Tumblr, <laughs> um, always as Boy Band Fangirl. Mm-hmm. So on Twitter, it's Boy Band Fangirl with an underscore at the end, Instagram, Boy Band Fangirl, and Tumblr, Boy Band Fangirl. Um, and yeah, we're very busy on those. We love running those those accounts and interacting with other fans. Jessica, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. Standard Issue for All Women.